It's a joy to see you all. And to be with you in such a, a gathering of seekers. But what do we seek? Some seek beauty, some seek love, some seek peace, some seek power, some truth, some seek freedom, some seek God, some seek just to know what is it all about, why am I here, what am I? what is real. Do you have those questions? How many of you really have such questions? Yes? Good. This school is dedicated to help you answer those questions, but not to answer them theoretically, because theory is frankly empty. Talk is cheap. The answer lies in the silence of the heart. The answers emerge when we are at peace, when we have found our center. And many people think, well, yes, but my question is, how do I find that center? How do I open the heart? But it happens not actually by making some kind of difficult effort, but simply allowing yourself to be. It's simply a very radical self-acceptance. But what we have to come to accept is the fact that we don't really know who we are or have the answers to those questions at the surface level. They are not in our minds and they are not out in the world. but they are present as that very silence. The reason why silence is so important is that the mind has many false assumptions about reality. Starting with the assumption that the I word or yo or ich or whatever language that you speak, that that I refers to the body. And that the link between the self and the body is via the mind. And so we are always thinking. 
and society teaches us to think and think and think. But the thinking is actually an alienation from our being. And because everything we learned via language is based on the idea that you are a separate individual who is in a perishable body and caught in the flow of time and space. You cannot avoid the stress of feeling that you are being carried away, rushing from one thing to another, never being able to stop, never being able to find a refuge in this ever-accelerating rush of events. But through a very simple change of focus from the events out there and from the body that's in the chaos of one thing after another, there is the observer, there is the consciousness that never moves, that is always silently aware of everything, but never participates in it. That part of you that is always silent and observing in the Indian tradition is called the self that sits on a lotus, like this candle flame on this flower. It's a universal symbol. And the lotus sits on top of the mucky pond, but is not in the mud. It's above it. It's at peace. And that light, or sometimes the Buddhists talk about the jewel in the lotus, the diamond in the lotus, that essence, that flame, is our spirit that is untouched, that is always peaceful, that is always filled with self-knowledge, truth, with love, with joy. But to reach that, we have to get out of the mud and onto the lotus flower. And that lotus flower is a metaphor for the realization of the sacredness of our life. And once we recognize that our consciousness is our jewel, is our pearl of great price, our consciousness is the heart of everything, it is the ultimate value Without consciousness, is there anything at all? Is there a world? But most of us do not know the fullness of the potential and the dimensions of our consciousness. We live on the external level. We live in body consciousness. And we rarely develop the depth of being. We rarely reach that point within the consciousness from which our inspirations come, the source of our creative freedom, the source of our power to endure and to persevere. Our will comes from that deep source. Our capacity to love 
and to be loved. And more than that, the peace that comes from the realization that the self is not caught in the flow of time and space and is not the body and is actually transcendent of the whole flow of the world, the flux, the chaos, the impermanence, the constant change. This part of us that is unmoving is eternal and therefore completely unafraid. (coughs) And it's that fearlessness that enables us to approach life with an open heart, without defenses, without bravado, without having to be tough, or without avoiding or without colluding, or without becoming codependent on someone else, but to be able to stand alone and be fully empowered, and to trust that what is within you is priceless, is beautiful, and you don't have to prepare to be able to experience that you are good enough to be somewhere. You don't have to worry about whether you're acceptable You don't have to be concerned with how others see you because you know that what is within you is divine and carries the beauty of God. And you never have to second-guess yourself. And so it's that freedom from fear and anxiety that is actually the foundation of leading a beautiful life. Because when you don't have anxiety and fear, whether you're good enough, smart enough, beautiful enough, strong enough, whatever it is that you might feel you lack in enoughness, it's always an illusion. And when we know that divine beauty and that divine light and that divine power as our essence, we want it to shine. We want it to emanate from ourselves. We want to give. And that whole egoic sense of needing to take, needing to be the star, needing to be the one who has it all, the the greed, which comes from a sense of lack, the envy, and all the pathologies of the ego and its narcissism simply fall away. And one leads a life that's very simple, very pure of heart, but that is authentic, that is true to yourself, and therefore your life becomes fulfilling. And it doesn't matter whether you're famous, it doesn't matter whether you're rich, it doesn't matter whether your body is healthy, none of the conditions of life matter when you realize you are the unconditional self that is eternal. That's what gives you the sense of dignity, the sense of true nobility, of royalty of spirit. It doesn't come from having some high position in the corporate world or in some prestige in society. It doesn't come from any of those things. It comes from knowing who you are. It comes from knowing that you're a manifestation of God. Nothing less.
And that's what enables you to let go of the traumas, the wounds of childhood, in which you were not recognized as that, in which you may have been ignored or abused or treated in some way that was not sacred. But that's because those others had not had their eyes open. They were blind, they were asleep, whether they were your parents or they were so-called friends or society at large or whatever. But when the eye, the third eye opens, we see the divinity in everyone, including in ourselves. And then we are also able to forgive, as Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And when we are able to forgive those who have harmed us in the past and recognize that whatever wounds we carry have also made us wiser, more compassionate, then even the wounds become badges of courage that enable us to become fully, not only human, but fully divine. And once we are healed, we are naturally drawn to become healers for others. And in, it's in that movement of helping to heal others' wounds through your own love and compassion that makes love and life fulfilling. But all of this has to begin with the willingness to see that whatever self-image you have carried or self-concept is not your real self. Because the real self is invisible. It's formless. It's pure awareness. But it's a paradox that what is most alive and real and present is actually absent from the world as an object. And this is what the ego mind can't grasp because we're trained to think that only objects are real. If I can touch it, if I can hold it, if I can do whatever with it, then it's real. And I'm real only to the extent that I can look in the mirror and see a body. But what you are is what doesn't show up in the mirror. It's what sees but is never able to be seen except with that third eye, which is the eye of God. And so Sat Yoga is about opening that third eye and seeing. And Meister Eckhart, a great Christian mystic in the 13th century said, the eye with which we see God is the same eye with which God sees us. And what does that mean? except that I and God are one. And that is true for each of us. And at this level of the real self that is formless, there are no differences. There are no gender differences. The spirit has no gender of male or female. It's a harmonious interweaving of all of the virtues that we consider masculine and those we consider feminine. But those are simply artificial cultural differences and every society 
splits the male and the female attributes in different ways. But what we are is wholeness. We have all the aspects that are human. And therefore, the self is beyond desire. It has no fear, but it has no desire. It's at peace. It needs nothing, it wants nothing. It is in fullness. And what had been desire at the level of the ego becomes pure love. And so the transformation that Radhama was talking about is a transformation from a desire economy to a love economy. From a world that is seen as objects you can take to a world that is seen as a manifestation of God in infinite forms and infinite permutations to which one can give and share and be at one with. And so an entirely different paradigm of reality emerges naturally. This is the translation of the trivium. We see things with that new eye that is open. As Jesus said, when the eye is single, then you are filled with light, and the world is filled with light. And that is what leads to the generosity of spirit that brings out that which is most beautiful, most powerful, most harmonious, most musical, to use that metaphor that Radhama used. And the harmony of all human beings then becomes possible. We can then create community a symphony of human souls who are all different chords in God's musical rhapsody of rapture that this world is intended to be. But that true note comes from the power of your being the true vibration that comes from the essence within you, not modified or filtered by the ego, but the absolutely pure, natural, and supernatural self that is unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, immutable, changeless, and ultimately is the only reality In India, they measure reality in terms of shelf life. How long does something last? And what is temporary has less value than what is permanent. But the only real that never goes away, that never stops, that is never interrupted is the real of our true consciousness. And that real of our consciousness, when we have touched that innermost note of presence, remains constant 
whether we're awake, whether we're asleep, whether we're in a dream, whether we're in a coma, whether we die and leave this dimension and pass into other realms or reincarnate, but the presence of our real being remains constant, eternal. And therefore, the movement, the cyclic change from existence to non-existence, appearance to disappearance, life to death, day to night, the cycles of time, Kali Yuga to Sat Yuga, all of the different movements of history, they all take place within this unmoving eternal consciousness. And just like someone using a camera, if they keep the shutter open longer, they will see a different panorama. You've seen those photographs where the stars become circles within circles in the sky, right? Because you can see the larger picture of the patterns of cosmic movement. In the same way, when our third eye is open and we don't shut it, we don't interrupt our consciousness by falling into illusions and maya, then we see the grand pattern of God's mind. And we recognize that all of the movements in history, whether the macro movements or the little micro interactions on a daily basis that you have with the people in your life, they are all part of a perfect tapestry of being, of infinite beauty, an infinite wealth of wisdom, if we can see the lessons we are meant to learn from every event. And then we understand that this world is a school and we are being educated to rise in consciousness to higher and higher levels of appreciation of the wisdom of that supreme intelligence which has created all of this. And it's a kind of wisdom you don't learn in schools or universities out there today which are focused on their little tunnel vision disciplines. And yes, you can learn to think in certain very specific ways and gain specialized knowledge. But because you don't see the whole picture, none of those disciplines ever results in the acquisition of truth. It always results in theories that have a very short shelf life. Because God's picture is always changing. And only from that eternal perspective can we actually resolve the problems that the world faces today? From the little ego mind, it looks impossible, and we will be in despair. But from the mind of God, all of the problems we have can be solved. But they can only be solved when we are in a state of consciousness in which we wish to solve those problems out of love. And we are willing to surrender the ego mind's little paradigms and little desires and petty concerns for that larger circle of care that includes our planet, our ecosystem, Mother Nature as a whole, and include all of reality and the sacredness of being. And when we see everyone and everything and every moment and the very fact of the existence of the world itself as the manifestation of God, then the solution to those problems will be given to us as an inspiration.
and humanity will begin to move to a different kind of music, a different kind of understanding. And we will move as a superorganism, not as separate egos any longer, but as a single consciousness downloaded into many different biocomputers, but one intelligence that will move us all harmoniously and beautifully. But that is what surrender to God means. It means surrender to the level of intelligence that is beyond the ego mind. And that is when life becomes truly meaningful and beautiful. And when we can learn to solve the critical problems that the world faces today that won't be solved politically, socially, technologically, or in any other way from the ego level, but only from this divine mind. So the only question is, do we want to be part of the solution by downloading that intelligence, or part of the problem, which is the ego mind itself? What level of consciousness do we wish to live at? Who are we? Are we the limited self or the unlimited, the vast, infinite self? We are that vast self, but do we dare download that? Do we dare feel the energies that will shatter the ego and all of its beliefs and all of its, uh, its template, it will blow away all of its belief systems? will bring it into the deepest unknownness in which alone it can find itself. Each of us must go through that transition, through the dark night of the soul, in which we face the realization that who we thought we were was an illusion and that we don't know. But with faith, we will find the light at the end of that dark tunnel and find the glory, the majesty of eternal life. This is basically the promise of, of yoga, of sat-yoga, which is the science of consciousness. Yoga makes ten promises to us at the very beginning. How many of you have studied hatha yoga, have gone to do asanas and pranayamas? A few people. Well, if you have studied the theory of yoga, which was written originally, it was taught before it was written for many centuries, but it was written by Patanjali, and, and it had eight limbs. It's called Ashtanga Yoga, eight limbs. And the first two limbs are called the Yamas and Niyamas. And originally, if you went to a school of yoga, let's say a couple of thousand years ago in India, the first thing you would have to do to be admitted into the school would be that you would agree to live a life according to these Yamas and Niyamas. They were, they were like vows of living a, a, a pure life. And then you would begin asanas and pranayamas, which are the breathing exercises, and then the pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, and the ultimate bliss of samadhi, which are increasingly internalized practices. 
But I don't think of these yamas and niyamas so much as vows or commandments or dharma, but as promises. Does anyone know what the yamas and niyamas are? What they consist in? Eugenia, do you know? Tell me, what are the yamas? What's the first one? Ahimsa, what is that? Nonviolence. So let's start with that one. Most people are not capable of being nonviolent in the true sense. Their thoughts are often filled with anger. They're filled with frustrations. They are often filled with self-attacks. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve to be happy. I don't have this or that. I, right? They feel they're, they are attacks on oneself and or attacks on other people. Now you can take ahimsa, nonviolence, as a vow that I should be nonviolent. I shouldn't have those thoughts. But really what yoga is saying is that when you are in that realization of who you are, you will naturally be nonviolent. You don't have to struggle to be. That's our natural state. When you're in the silence of the heart, you're loving. There is no violence. And so it's a promise that this is what will be attained. And if when everyone becomes nonviolent, there will be no wars, no social conflicts those problems will be resolved easily. You don't need to create social movements. They will happen as the result of consciousness. What's the second one? I remember the order of that. Satya? Satya, exactly. Which means truth. It means that you will have the ability to live in truth. It's not that you should be truthful and not tell lies and all of this, but the problem is the ego mind isn't capable of being truthful because it doesn't know its own truth. It's made up of the projections that other people had on you, their fantasies in childhood, your parents, your, your extended family, society. It's not made of truth. And so the capacity to even know the truth of your being only comes when you have gone beyond the ego. And so it is a promise that you will have access to truth. And think how precious that is. When the ego mind can never get out of its illusions because the very I that's trying to get out of the illusion is the illusion. What's the third one? No, well, it's usually the fourth, asteya, non-stealing. It means I don't feel some lack that I have to steal, whether it's somebody else's things or their ideas or their time or whatever. I, I accept my condition. I'm happy with, with what I have, and I'm happy that other people have what they have. I don't need to take anything. I can accept what's given, but I don't feel like I must transgress. And so there's a peace and a trustworthiness that then comes out of that lack of any desire to take what is not truly one's own. And one realizes that what is truly yours can't be taken from you. Whatever is given by God will be with you always. Now brahmacharya. Brahmacharya is an interesting one. It's usually interpreted as a vow to not engage in any inappropriate sexual behavior, not objectify 
other people as objects of lust, but to see everyone as a divine being and to treat everyone with sacredness and true appropriate love. But really, brahmacharya means to abide in Brahman. Brahman is a word, an ancient word for that supreme being, that supreme absolute consciousness in which there is no desire and no fear and in which there is automatically a loving connection with everyone and no sense of lack or neediness or any impulses that are irresistible to one's self. So one is never moved off of one's center. One is never driven. One is never, uh, can never be seduced and one can never be defiled. And so it gives one a freedom to be able to relate to others with power and with compassion and with harmony, but without fear of their desire and without losing yourself into some desire which could result, as Buddha said very clearly, in regret and remorse and attachments that are not appropriate to you. So it's a, a kind of purity of attitude. And the fifth one? Do you know? Aparigraha. Aparigraha, very good. And what does that one mean? Non-covetousness. Non-covetousness. I think the way to understand that that's most relevant is that you won't feel any envy for anyone else. Not only will you not covet what they have or their talents or their attributes of whatever ever it is, but that you will recognize that what you have is divinely given. And you'll want to develop what you have and discover what you have that you don't even know you have because you haven't gone deep enough into your soul to find those latent capacities and develop them. But the attention will go inward to finding out what are the gifts that God has given you that you don't yet even know are within you rather than wanting to take them from someone else. So those are the yamas. And God's promise is that this will be your state of being. Not that you have to struggle to do this, but that this is your natural way of appearing in the world when you are in your true sat consciousness. Now what about the niyamas? What's the first niyama? I don't know the order either, but shaucha is one of them. Shaucha, yes. And what is that? Purity. Yes. And shaucha deals with the purity of behavior and hygiene, purity of diet, not eating junk food, but eating food that's truly nutritious and healthy and good for the planet as well as for yourself. Uh, and treating your body as a sacred uh, manifestation of God so you don't forget to brush your teeth at night and you don't do other things that would harm the health of your body. You don't smoke, you don't poison your body. You, you treat your body as the beautiful, sacred, divine being that is the vehicle of your spirit. And so it's that attitude uh, that changes many, many things naturally in your life. What's the next one? Santosha. Santosha. We've forgotten Santosha. It's, I think, one of the most important and beautiful uh, elements because it means contentment. 
It means that our natural state is contentment. There's no stress, there's no worry. There's no wishing I was somewhere else or had a different kind of job or different, I was in a different community or a different this or that. You're, you accept what you, you were given and you realize its beauty. And you, you can then dig roots into the soil of your life and then begin to blossom rather than thinking, no, I better not plant myself here because I might want to plant myself somewhere else later and I can never really make a commitment until I feel contentment. And that's when life begins, when you've made a commitment to a place and a relationship and a community and a set of values and practices and ways of living that are truly healthful and bring wholeness to your life and beauty to your world. So that contentment will be given naturally. You won't have to take pills to calm down, but it will be uh, simply the emanation of love from within you. What's the next one? Tapas. tapas. You mustn't forget tapas. It's not the Spanish tapas. That you <laughs> It means such a deep level of meditation that you experience what is called yoga agni, which is the fire of yoga. You will feel that your entire brain is on fire. It's a flame. And what literally happens when you're in deep meditation is that the old thoughts and attitudes and neural um, cycles and synapses and ways that the neurons fire shift, they change, so that the conditioned ways of thinking and behavior are simply extinguished. And the entire ego is simply a a network of conditioned responses. And that stimulus response model of your life dissolves so that suddenly you're free. And now you can know what free will really is because the ego mind is conditioned to react in certain ways and keep you unfree. But freedom comes from this tapasya that burns away all of the conditionings of the past. And it's an extraordinary experience. And for a while it can create headaches and pressure and you may feel discomfort but you'll also feel more free and spacious and gradually your energy field expands to infinity. And it's an incredible experience that you shouldn't miss in your life, this power of freedom that meditation gives you. Swadhyaya, what does that one mean? Spiritual study. Yes. So because our minds are conditioned when we start the process, we tend to go back to old ways of thinking that are self-defeating, self-hating, and and putting ourselves down and forgetting the transcendent dimensions of reality and becoming one-dimensional beings again and materialistic and animalistic. And so to have a a regimen, a practice of every day reading the words of enlightened sages from whatever tradition, Christian, Buddhist, Taoist, Hindu, it doesn't matter because they're all saying the same thing. But those words, even if you just take in a a paragraph or a sentence of wisdom, can suddenly relight your light of spirit if it's gone out and bring you back to the remembrance of why you're here 
and re-empower you. And so it's very good to have a little library of books that you can just open and read at any moment, any page, a sentence of wisdom. It doesn't mean you have to study deeply the concepts and the philosophies and metaphysics, but just get a sense of the beauty of who you are so that through those words you can go again beyond words and realize the truth that is your essence. And then the final one. Ishvara Pranidhana. Ishvara Pranidhana. Ishvara is a Sanskrit word for God. And pranidhana means surrender. And so the idea of this is that your life is a surrender to God. And if that surrender is conscious, then life will be beautiful. If it's unconscious, it means you're resisting. And you cannot resist God successfully. I hope that's not news to you. The attempt to resist God and God's will is called karma. (laughs) And karma really means suffering. And so if you want to live a life without suffering, you surrender to the will of God. And let that will carry you, because that will is all good. It, It doesn't want you to suffer. That will will take you into bliss, into salvation, into levels of consciousness that are so filled with joy and with knowledge and with power and light that you would wonder, why did I ever resist? You know, what a fool. But even that, of course, is important. Even that's a kind of resistance. But at some point, all of your ego life will be realized as a dream, that it wasn't real. Once you have awakened from that dream, and the beauty that life really is, and the eternal nature of it, is so amazing, so astonishing, so absolutely perfect in its capacity for wonderment and for creativity that you would never want to live any other way. Because surrendering to God means surrendering to the supreme intelligence and the supreme love and the supreme meaningfulness of the world and of yourself. Who wouldn't want to surrender to that? And so these are not simply vows that you take that you will then force yourself into some box of living in a straitjacket of yogic demands, but it's the promise of freedom that will enable you to discover your ultimate potential and make it actual. But all of this is already here. It is already who you are now in this moment. You don't have to struggle to attain it, but simply let go of the struggle to resist it. and to allow yourself to be. The mind will never stop racing forward. It's in a state of becoming, but it never reaches being. 
It's like the horse with the carrot in front of it. It, it will never reach that carrot and eat it. It will run for miles and miles and miles, and it's an illusion, it's a mirage. And the ego mind is living in a mirage of reality in, it, in which it thinks, well, the next million dollars will get me happiness, or the next person I can go to bed with, or the next great vacation, or the next whatever it is that your mind is producing as a fantasy that will bring you happiness. It's never that. And you know that. And so by recognizing that the only real carrot is in your heart, and it's what you are, you'll begin to care for that carrot, <coughs> and not let it rot, but allow it to grow and blossom and bring you to the pinnacle of joy by recognizing that you are that. It's not even what you seek, it's what you are. And that's all meditation is, letting yourself realize you are a manifestation of God, here and now, of eternal life, of light, of formless, perfect consciousness, perfect love. So let's meditate together. Why don't we lower the lights a little bit and uh, sit comfortably?